Good morning, class. Sunday, September 29th. We continue our exploration of our series, The Least of These. And I want us to read again sort of our launching text, which is Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31, where we find this phrase on the lips of Jesus. It is the clearest, most vivid teaching in the Bible on the final judgment. And we want to read this text, and then we're going to make a series of observations and draw some principles from it. Let me pray for us as as we do this. Lord in heaven, we uh, honor you this morning as the coming judge. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You have promised in your word you will recompense to every one of us for what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. And we thank you that our confidence this morning is that uh, the judgment for our sins has been borne by Jesus on the cross And we're so grateful that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glory to be in Christ, uh, to be lavished with all the riches of his work. Thank you. And thank you from our brothers and sisters and the heart you've given them for the truth, to know your word, to love your word, to obey your word. Fulfill that desire in them this morning. Take your word, plant it deep in us, and bring fruit from it that would bring glory and honor to our Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords. The great I am, Jesus Christ. Amen. Who would like to read for us then at, uh, the text? I think it's maybe page two or three. Two, okay. Did I, was that a volunteer reader, Pat? Okay, thank you. So Matthew 25, verse 31. Thank you. That's our launching text. So forward in your handout to the page at the very top that starts Lake of Fire. Because this is where we left off last time. Got it? Lake of Fire at the top. 
And we're gonna, where we ended last time was right after the Revelation 22 passage. Um, and I want us to start this morning by making the assertion that unbelief denies judgment. With how many people is it popular, the doctrine of final judgment? How many people think there's going to be a day of accounting? How many people give conscious thought to the fact that every word, every thought, every deed, everything undone that should have been done, it's all going to be called into account? How many people think about that? Good. We should think about that. Doing this study has me thinking about it a lot more than I ever did in my life. So 63 is a little late to the game, but nonetheless, here I am. So let's look at two passages from the Psalms, which just sort of captures uh, from one perspective the thinking of unbelief with respect to this. Somebody read Psalm 10, 5 to 11. Thank you, Sally. So that's, wow, right? So before we identify, make some observations about some of this person's behaviors, what's the root problem of this, according to the first verse? What's the root problem? Pride. Pride. And what does pride tell him? Look at the last verse. What does pride tell him? God's not going to see this. So pride has an agenda. Pride has a theological agenda. Everything's oriented towards God because the nature of reality is it's theocentric. God made everything. God's at the center of reality. God is inescapable. Even the atheist is saying deep in his heart, there's no God. God won't hold me account. You can't not escape God. And then we live and move and have our being. So make some observations about the way this person thinks, what this person does. What does he have to convince himself? There's no God. Why does he need to convince himself that? Because then what he does doesn't come into judgment. Uh, I, was, I was on a, a train one time in the dining car, and forgive me if I shared this story with you. I think I might have been in my Proverbs class, but forgive me. And, and, and they're doing away with the meals in the dining car, but it, it, not when I was there. And you get hooked up with strangers, and I talked with this man over breakfast and started to share the gospel with him, and he just kind of said, I don't believe in God, and sort of went off, paid his bill and went off. And as I stood up, uh, and the, the hostess there who was seating people overheard the conversation. And she overheard his assessment that he didn't believe in God, and he walked off. And she said this, those kind of people scare me. And I went, huh? She says, they're not accountable to anybody. 
right. Bingo. So this person doesn't want to be accountable, and as a result, what's going on? What's he doing? He's wreaking havoc on the earth, right? Making people's lives miserable. Let's, let's move on, unless you have any other observations about this one. Just making the point that unbelief needs to consciously or unconsciously deny that there's a day of accounting. Somebody read then for us Psalm 94, 1 through 11. <clears throat> Got it, Jim? Thank you. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and murder the fatherless, until they say, The Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O jealous of people, fools, when you will be when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Thanks, Jim. So what is this person saying in their heart of hearts, whether consciously or unconsciously? It's verse 7. The Lord doesn't see this, right? Uh, and then he appeals to the very nature of God. Of course God sees. Look at the eye. That proves there's a God who sees. Look at the ear. That proves there's a God who hears. Look at the mouth. That proves there's a God who speaks. Very interesting. Reasoning from the obvious uh, to, to, to the nature of God. It's, it's just beautiful. And so we're called to what? Not be dull to understand, forsake our foolishness, and be wise. In the Bible, foolishness doesn't have to do with your IQ. You can get 1,600 on your SATs and be a fool. Foolishness is a, a refusal to reason according to the obvious. And it's obvious we're created. We didn't make ourselves. The whole creation screams that it owes its existence to a purposeful creator. So foolishness is a refusal to deal with the obvious. Okay, so those are just two places illustrating that, that unbelief does not want to deal with the day of accounting. Although, we all like the idea of justice, don't we? Don't we? You don't have to be a believer. If you're harmed, you need to take somebody to court. You want a just verdict, and you should, right? Okay, let's make observations then about the Matthew 25 passage, the first, and feel free to just comment if you want to. We live in a moral universe where everything is judged fairly. True, false, yes, good, bad, indifferent. It's a good thing, isn't it? You know, if you lived in a place where your loved ones were being slaughtered for the name of Christ, this would mean a lot more to you than when than you lived in a place where it was very safe and it wasn't super threatening to be a Christian. It, it means a whole lot to you that you live in a moral universe, that there's a day of accounting for people that uh, hurt you and hurt God's people. A judgment is coming. There will be reward for good and punishment for bad. What exactly did that look like? I've confessed to you I don't know. The Bible tells us that fact. It doesn't unpack the details of, of what that all is going to look like. I don't know. But that is, apparently then that means it's sufficient for us to be warned to live accordingly. Right? What's the best reason to do what's good and to avoid what's bad? Other than the fact that we're going to be judged. What's the best reason? Say it louder. Please God. 
Yeah, to please God, to bring glory to God. What is it God is looking for on the earth? He's most passionate to see reflected back to him the glory of his character. And we hope who are regenerate have that enormous privilege of reflecting back to him the glory of his character, his love of justice, his love of righteousness, his hatred of sin. That's the best reason to do it. And also as a thank offering to our beloved Savior. What did Abraham say to God as God was thinking about destroying Sodom? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God will do right. And what's stunning is that we will never face the wrath of God because God poured his judgment into the body of Jesus for all who trust in him. Stunning. That mercy alone. We'll see the theme of mercy as we move through the handout today. Jesus is the judge. Number four, the nations will be gathered. Everybody, no one escapes this. All, everyone is in front of Jesus. Next thing to observe, the way things seem may not be evidence of the way things are, which will be revealed at the last day. Remember the Jesus parable of, well, here's the sheep and the goats, right? Everybody lives together. It looks like everybody's getting along. But according to the parable of the weeds and the tares... They're growing together. What happens? You really don't know to the end. Of, so somebody read there for us, Matthew thirteen thirty. Okay, so it's really not to the end of time, to the final harvest that we're going to know who true believers are not. And one of the reasons we preach the gospel every Sunday in church is not only do believers need it, but you have to assume, I assume there are people sitting in front of me, they might even be church members, who don't yet understand the gospel. So what appears to the naked eye isn't always the way that it is. Okay. So uh, now, what's the one example where the church must take action to act on someone who's who says they believe in Jesus but is acting severely contrary to it. The one example exception is church discipline, where, the, where Jesus has asked church leaders to move in a situation into the life of someone who is refusing to repent for bringing dis, disrepute to the name of Jesus. They must be dealt with. Okay, that's, that's the one exception before the end of time when all will be clear who belonged to Jesus and who didn't. Right. Um, second thing that uh, things aren't always the way they seem uh, and will be revealed on the last day is that, that the sons of God will not be revealed in their true glory until that day. Romans 8, 19. This is an easy assignment. One verse. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons to, of God. Okay, so it doesn't yet appear the, the, the glory that you and I are as sons and daughters of God. And the whole creation is waiting to see what we're going to look like. The whole creation. It's groaning. Maybe that's what earthquakes are. It's just waiting to see your glory to be glorified in Jesus Christ. More vividly then is the First John 3 passage. He would read that for us. <clears throat> see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. 
but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Thanks, Frank. So what tension do we live with day in and day out? What's the tension here? What's that? Okay, we're waiting to see God in his glory. And when we do, we're going to be glorious like him. We're going to, see, we're going to be... You can't look God in the face and not be like him. So we're going to be glorified. We're going to, we're going to look like Jesus. What other tension? So we're waiting for that day. That day has not come yet. Everybody look at you and go, oh, you are, you're obviously a Christian. Does it, that happen in your life? People you work with, your neighbors, they go, I see you, you're obviously a Christian. You're going to be glorified with Jesus one day. That doesn't happen either. We look pretty ordinary to people. Right? We speed, we roll through stop signs, we leave, may our grass gets a little too long, whatever, right? So uh, that's a tension we live with. The world doesn't know God, Jesus and it doesn't intuitively know those who belong to Jesus. Should we strive to make him known? Yes. How? By obeying him, living differently, the way we speak, the way we parent, the way we engage with our enemies. There's a way to make him known. Yes. So, moving down the hand, unless anybody wants to say anything else about the First John 3 passage. There are only, we're making observations about the teaching from Matthew 25. There's only two ultimate destinies. Glory, Jesus says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what we're heading to, a kingdom. And we will reign with him. That means we're going to be rich with him. Because if you reign, you reign over things that belong to you. Everything's going to belong to us because we belong to Christ. He's our older brother. We inherit everything that belongs to him. He's our inheritance. Everything that's in is ours. I think I need to make a bigger deal about that in my life. And the other ultimate destiny is agony. Jesus said these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Do we really believe in the doctrine of hell? I think it should prepare us in evangelism, at least. So let's try to draw out some principles then from this teaching. A... We need to know what's really important. Somebody comment on that. In light of the final judgment, in light of these two ultimate destinies, what do you do in your life to say, I've got to make sure I'm living for what's really important. Not spinning my wheels, not wasting my time, not playing trivial pursuit with my life. What do you think? Is that fair? Can, we can get too uptight about that, Yes. Christians don't have any fun, do they? They don't smile, do they? <laughs> Got to know what's really important. I think, so finish the sentence. And if you're younger, you don't have to finish it. Because you'll see why in a second. Finish the sentence. Now that I'm older, if I were younger, I would have done this differently. In light of what I know now. How would you, anybody take a, take a stab at finishing that? Now that I'm older, I would have done this differently. If I was younger and had it to do again. You've been more serious and intentional about obedience. Become addicted to the pleasure. The pleasure of bringing joy to God's heart through obedience. It would have been really good to be more addicted to that as a younger person. Yes. 
Because, you know, when we stand before Jesus, we're going to sorrow for every act of disobedience. We'll sorrow for it. We will, we will wish we'd sin less. Won't we? In the presence of Jesus? So, it's not too soon to start. Beloved younger one. What else? Would you have collected as many things? You know, I walk around my house and I look at all this stuff. You know, and we, you know, we, we love wood furniture. We love wood furniture. And most of it we got at a discount. That doesn't matter. We spent money on it. Is that okay? Well, you need furniture in your house, yes. But how much accumulating would there have been with it, you know? Was our accumulating match with faithful giving to the church? That's really important. When you start out, you make a budget and you get your full-time jobs. For those of you in Radio Land, I'm speaking to two of our students. <laughs> you take a portion of that paycheck and you give it to Jesus and you live off the rest. Too many people live on what they get and what's left over they give to Jesus. That's the opposite way to do it. Jesus gets the first fruits, then you live on what's left. How many of you would have wanted to give more to Jesus? Okay? Okay, good. Anyone, anyone else want to finish this? I'm doing all. I asked you, and I'm doing all the talking. <laughs> now that I'm older, I would have done this differently. Yes. Spend more time in the Word. Yes. Yes, more time with Jesus. Clearly, I would say that. Yeah. I think it's not the bad things that are a distraction, but the good things uh-huh. to an unhealthy degree. Okay. Yeah. You know, a job is a good thing. Yeah. But it needs its rightful place. Yes. Good. Kids are a good thing, but they usually, but they need to be in their rightful place. That's right. And you know, we really need to help each other with this battle. It's hard. It's really hard to find, to find our sanity in the midst of these things. Thank you, Lisa. B. Second principle: Life short, we must invest for eternity. The, uh, this is the story of the man who got rich by whose blessing? God's. Let's build more barns. Store up, store up, store up. You don't know these life requires you tonight. You should have been in, investing for eternity. So, um, are, is that something we're conscious of? Investing for eternity? Good. Let's help each other think in those terms. Life short. You know, you, uh, what, what's the saying? No man said on his deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Except Michael Scott. Those of you who know. C, am I storing my treasures faithfully? The gifts God's given you, the time, energy, expertise, money, availability. Are you storing your gifts faithfully? This is, look, part of the, I reached an age and I kind of got tired. I said, I just want to do nothing. And that's what, you, you, you get to a certain age and you get tired. You want to do nothing. And I couldn't afford to retire, really. But what would, what's the best reason not to retire for me? What's the best reason? I've got to be a steward of the gifts God's given me. I want to use the gifts God's given me. As long as he's given me energy and health and a clear mind, I want to be a good steward of the gifts God's given me for Jesus. I want to be a steward of his gifts. One reason I, why I'm with you. I, you know, I can't kick up my heels. I want to come and use my gifts for your sake. We should all think that way, yes? Am I being a faithful steward of my gifts? D, 
why, why do I treat people the way I do? Now, why am I raising that question based on the, uh, based on the final judgment scene? What's the scene about? Jesus is asking people why they treated people the way they did. So do you think about that? Why do I treat people the way I treat them? Here's someone made in God's image. Jesus has loved me. He's given me a love to share with them. Good. And also both groups of people didn't have a conscious understanding that they were doing it to Christ. They did not. They did not. That's another principle we'll tease out here. So are you aware of why you treat people the way you do? Some of us are very controlling. We're subtle. We're manipulative. We, we control people. Some of us are trying to draw approval by the way we live. Some of us have something to prove. We want people to think we're smart, we're competent, we're funny, we're whatever. Think about why you interact with people the way you do. The best reason is what Pat said. I want to show them the love of Jesus. I've got no agenda here. And guess what? If they don't love you back, guess what? That's their loss. It's not nothing on you. So think about why you treat people the way you do. E, what's ruling my heart? Is it full of greed or can I part with my money? Why is that an important question? Some of the people in Jesus' final judgment scene are what? They need your money. (laughs) They need your money. They're naked. You need to buy them clothes. They're hungry. You need to buy them food. You need to put them up at a hotel, whatever it is. They need your money. So what is it going on in my heart that I'm unwilling to part with my money to help other people? I've got to ask that question. What's going on in my heart? Fears? Well, if I depart with, or I'm not going to have enough to spend on my pleasures when, when their basic needs aren't being met. So I've got to look at my heart. Just jump in if you want to add to this. F? There will be a final proving day of authentic faith. Faith. So this scene here is evidence of faith, not the cause of faith. Or cause of salvation. The fact that they did these things to others isn't earning salvation. It is evidence of saving faith. This is Lisa's question a week ago. So this scene is evidential of saving faith. This isn't the cause of everlasting life. We're saved by grace, through faith, by Christ, alone, 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 alone. It's all over the worship space. Every Sunday you see it in those banners, the solas. Sola Christus, sola fide, sola gratia, sola de gloria, sola scriptura. It's all through Christ. And when that all grips you, it changes the way you relate to other people. It just does. So these become tests to see. Well, that's actually... um, Well, no, we'll get to that. So, G, there are people who think they're saved but are not and will be very surprised on the judgment day. Right? These people are surprised. Um, How do I explain that? The offer of eternal life appeals to most of us. Why does it appeal to most of us? We were made for eternity. Nobody intuitively wants to die. We all want to live. Present the idea of paradise. You don't need to be a believer. Atheists, agnostics can conjure up ideas of paradise. Right? They have the sense in them, this is what life should be like. Everyone has a vision. Everyone does. Because we're, we're human, we're made in the image of God. 
So the offer of eternal life appeals to most of us who are made for eternity, but it doesn't change all of us. The mere offer doesn't change people. It is possible to profess faith, but not possess faith. Stole that one from R.C. Said you can you can profess faith, but not be a possessor of faith. He, he tells the story of asking his little boy uh, uh, when he was younger, R.C. asked his son, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he'd say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? It's the E.E. question. And his son goes, because I'm dead. <laughs> and R.C. goes, justification by death alone. <laughs> now most people think this way. Even church people. You die, you go to heaven. It's what happens. God's job is let you into heaven when you die. What a great lie of the devil. If you wanted to send lots of people to hell, put that lie in their minds. Justification by death alone. All right, off of my RC kick. What a stud he was, right? Man. Um, so, people innately want the gifts of God without the giver. John Lennon's Imagine. Right? That song was all about the paradise of God without the God of paradise. Everybody gets along. No God above us. Really? That was the first, that was the first sin. Adam and Eve throwing off the reign of God. Come on, John. Somebody said he sort of got serious about things toward the end of his life. John Lennon? I don't know. Was he, I don't know. he knows now. There is a God above us. Yes. An entire uh, epistle in the New Testament is written to detail these three tests to see if you're in the faith. It's First John. Anybody know what the three tests are? John just cycles through them through the, all five chapters. He's, the three tests. Are you a Christian? The social test. Do you love your brothers? The moral test, do you obey Jesus? The doctrinal test, do you confess that Jesus has come in the flesh over against docetism? A heresy was developing at the time that Jesus only seemed to be human, but he wasn't. He was divine, but he wasn't human. Docetism, he's the, from the Greek verb dokeo, which means to seem. So the doctrinal test, you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. If he hasn't come in the flesh, you don't have a representative for your sins. That's why Jesus had to be man to represent us. Okay, so 1 John is an epistle you know, to read through. Everybody that is judged by Jesus on, in Matthew 25 should have had access to that epistle. How can you tell the difference between true and false faith? Before you look at my answer, what would you say? How can you tell the difference between true and false faith? The fruit. And, we're, and, and, and this, the fruit... All the fruits of faith, that's certainly what, the, what the, this final judgment scene is about, they are the product of what? Obviously a regenerate heart. But when you can see on the handout, somebody read then what my answer did. What, what did I say is the answer? Somebody read it out loud for us. Look at the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is mercy. Christ on the cross, yes, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. You're, getting, you're receiving forgiveness of sins. You're receiving a new heart. You're receiving eternal life. But the cross is mercy. He's taking the judgment you deserve. It's not getting what you deserve. 
And again, the greater you sense your sins, then what? The greater you understand the price Jesus paid. Right? Little, view myself as a little sinner, little cross. View myself as a big sinner, big cross. And, and that's, that's what the final judgment scene is about. Showing mercy. The naked need clothes. The hungry need food. The shelterless need shelter. The prisoners need... It's mercy ministry. And where does mercy ministry come from? My heart is in the grip of the mercy I've received through the cross of Jesus. You can tell a person who's under the power of that mercy. You can tell one that's not. For the most part. I hope that didn't sound judgmental. But you, you ought to be able to tell. Mercy is real. It grips us. We'll know them by their fruits, Jesus said. And again, the reason you're doing this is not to get God to accept you. You're not doing that to, be, uh, to earn salvation. You're doing it as a response of the love of Christ to you, the mercy he has shown you. Okay. Um, this is not a justifying event, but an evidential event. Those who receive mercy will in fact show mercy to others in word and deed. Mercy received transformed a heart into acting mercifully toward others in a lifestyle. So here's the story of the lady who comes in and anoints Jesus' feet. He's at the home of a Pharisee. And you know, Jesus walks into the house and it was customary in that day. Frank came to see me. I'd make sure his feet got clean. I'd anoint his head with oil, take his coat, all this kind of stuff. Do you want some coffee? Whatever it is. This Pharisee did none of this to Jesus until the illicit woman came in and started anointing her, uh, him with her tears. And so here's somebody to read the verse I've got there for you from Luke 7. This is, this is the Pharisee's response to, to Jesus' parable about the person who's forgiven much. Thank you. Typo there. Her sins are forgiven, which are much. Don't you love, don't you love the, 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 the Pharisee's response? The one, I suppose, who was forgiven much. As if he can't relate. He can't relate to being a person who's forgiven much. I'm telling you, you can tell people who have a big cross. You can tell. So if you're forgiven much, what do you do? Love much. Great mercy. Great acts of mercy and love. And love's very tangible. It's tangible. It meets needs. How did Jesus love you? He laid down his life for you and he met your greatest need. So as Jesus was for you, so you are to others. Mercy ministry is unto Jesus. Not as merit for salvation, but vindication of true saving faith or evidence of salvation. So at least two weeks ago, I think it was, we looked at the salvation equations. I don't think I need to do those again. But there is a typo in there. Please forgive me. Look at the last equation. Faith leads to justification plus works, not equals. Plus works. So change that in your canonical copies. And then somebody read for us where this beautifully is stated by Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Who'd read that for us? You got it? Hugh, thanks. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
And we have them in Christ. Now, I've been spending a lot of time in the last week on a 10-page handout we'll hopefully look at next week, which is going to unpack the whole point of this story, and that is um, the way you treat others is the way you're, you're treating Jesus when you treat others as a great way. I'm just very excited about it. I've been spending a lot of time on it. Ten page handout. So that's all I have to say about that. But that's coming. All right, H. People who showed mercy didn't think they were doing, as Frank pointed out earlier, didn't think they were helping Jesus. I. People who showed no mercy didn't know they were not helping Jesus. J. These are just observations, principles, and this. What unites these categories of people made the image of God with a personal history who could be you is they are all in need, they're desperate, they're unable to help themselves. All of these people could have been you. So if you weren't in prison, if you weren't naked, if you weren't hungry, if you weren't sick, why is that? The grace of God. The grace of God. And where we get in trouble is where we demand those things. I want my help. I demand a certain level of living. I demand this. I demand that. Um, Okay, we usually have reasons for not helping people. I've listed some of my bad reasons. Maybe you could add to them. I don't know where they are. I don't know who they are. Or I don't know how to help them. I don't care. I want to. I don't want to help them. They don't deserve my help. Or I don't like their race. I don't like their creed. I don't like their gender. I don't like their nationality. I don't like their appearance. Those are just some of the reasons that I can see in my own heart. Can we? Can you add any to these reasons why we see people in need and we won't help them? It's inconvenient. What's that? And like selfishness, like I don't have time. I don't have the time. Yeah. Other yeah. Things going on. What's it going to cost me? Yeah, I'm no. drowning. I can't help you. That's, That's right. That's <laughs> good. I'm drowning. I can't help you. Sorry, inconvenient. Inconvenient. Yeah. Yeah. Where do I start? I had got a call from a dear friend who's a deacon in my church in Fort Worth. And he's, uh, his relatives are, are missionaries in Haiti. And Haiti is atrocious. It's just atrocious right now. Everyone's starving. The, the, the people in, in, in government are bullied. It's awful. And he called to say, pray with me. How are we supposed to pray about this situation? Why am I making this point? Oh, what, what are we supposed to do about that? Do we just throw money at it? Maybe we support this this Christian couple that are helping it, the, the problem's so big where do we start okay. we can certainly pray and that's what we did um, so let's look at D and then, and then I'll come back next week and assault you with my 10 page handout <laughs> why is God so attentive to the needs of the destitute so that's the kind of question you want to ask when you read a text like this why are these the category of people that interest Jesus why is it the naked, the sick, the hungry, those in prison? What, why, why that? And not a different category of people. Why isn't it uh, athletes who have injuries? Or, or people who have uh, large homes and their security doesn't work? Well, I don't, I'm just asking, why is it this category of people? Because Jesus had a son that was homeless. He had nowhere to, play, to place his head. 
sorry, the father had a son who was poor. He had no possessions but his clothes. He was supported by the gifts of women. The father had a son who was a prisoner the last night of his life. He was in Caiaphas' prison. Anybody been to it? You can go to that very place in Jerusalem. Stunning. You read Psalm um, 88, the black sheep of the Psalter. Jesus probably prayed that psalm out loud in that very place, Psalm 88. The father had a son who was hungry 40 days and 40 nights without food. The father had a son who was rejected and despised. Think of that description Isaiah 53. The father had a son who was vulnerable on the cross. He was absolutely defenseless. The father had a son who was thirsty. Jesus cried out on the cross, I thirst. So God identifies with these tangible needs of human beings, not simply because he's a God that loves to meet the needs of his creatures, but he had a son who experienced all of these. You know, there's a argument with God. There's an argument to be made, though, that like the It's a good question. And they're scary people to go towards because they snub their nose, not, not all yeah. of them, but they tend to snub their nose up. I don't need what you are offering. Yeah. I don't need the truth. Um, the vulnerable are more open to God. Somebody famous said that. Jesus said it. The poor are closer to the kingdom of heaven. And he meant the, the financially poor. But Lisa's making the point the rich have their vulnerabilities, don't they? I mean, I live in a community outside of Lynchburg, Virginia, where there really aren't any poor people. There just aren't, there aren't any, they're not, you can't see them. What you see are big houses. You see what Lisa's describing. And I've often thought, what is, what is our church there? We planted a church there, Mercy Presbyterian. What does their ministry to the poor look like? We can go into the city and you see it, but what is the ministry to the, desti- the rich destitute? That's a question that I've thought about. I don't have an answer to it. And we're out of time. I'm saved by the bell. So, so next week, I can't wait for next week. So let's pray. Lord, as we go to worship, equip us by the power of your Holy Spirit to render to you something of the glory, the honor, the praise that is due your matchless name and change us and set us free and meet us with the word of truth, with the word of the gospel. And uh, be glorified in this precious church. Thank you for these dear saints. Lord, what a privilege to serve among them. Thank you for them. I love them with all my heart. They're precious to you. Bless them. Encourage them. Fill them with all joy and grace. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for attending.